Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Natasha McEnroe, the manager of the Grant Museum of Zoology at UCL, and it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. The, um, the only housekeeping that I have to do is to remind everyone to switch their mobile phones off in case you switch them on again during the lunch break. I'm sure that you, you all enjoyed the morning as much as, as much as I did. I was just saying to Jim that the nice thing about, uh, about organising the event yourself is that you actually get to choose all the speakers, so they're all people who I really wanted to hear. Um, also, if anybody is thinking about um, co being a co-host of an event, I thoroughly recommend being the half that doesn't actually do the hosting. I have to say, I'm, having, I'm having a really, really enjoyable day. Um, the morning session was um, looking at Darwin's London and specifically about the places. And for the afternoon, we're broadening it out and looking about people, both specifically and more generally. Our next speaker is Jim Endersby, um, who is probably best known to many of us as author of the acclaimed A Guinea Pig's History of Biology. Jim lectures at the University of Sussex and he's an acknowledged expert in the history of natural history and biology. Um, he's editor of the, um, my notes say, of the forthcoming new edition um, of On the Origin of Species, but um, in fact it is now out, recently out, so do dash the shops and get that. Um, Jim's going to be talking today on Darwin's friends and foes. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I should warn you, though, before you dash to the shops, that um, unless you're an MP whose party leader hasn't caught up with them yet, you won't be able to afford it because it's Cambridge University Press. <laughs> but if you know a rich institution, uh, do get them to buy it, and it may eventually appear in paperback. So I was asked to speak on this topic, and my first thought was um, to try and give you an overview of the scientific communities within which Darwin moved, the, the range of people he knew and the people that, that he worked with uh, and the ways that he reacted to them and, and interacted with them. And I realised that in the time available, that would very rapidly degenerate into a catalogue of fairly unfamiliar names, most of whom I wouldn't have time to say anything about. So I want to narrow and shift the focus a little bit in two ways. First of all, I'm actually going to talk about a slightly later period of London scientific society. I'm going to talk about the period after The Origin is published and look a little bit at reactions to it. And part of the reason I want to do that is also to shift the emphasis away from the private Darwin, the Darwin we've been hearing about, the notebooks, the letters, the diaries, his marriage, his private life, these things, and think about his readership and his audiences, the people who bought and read and responded to his books. So with that in mind, I'm going to take three people in particular. This is Richard Owen, of course, who we've met briefly already. Um, Darwin's friend in the early days, Darwin's enemy in later ones, and that's one of the things that I want to talk about. Thomas Henry Huxley, well-known uh, and very rather aggressive friend of Darwin's, um, and Joseph Dalton Hooker. And by looking at these three and about how they reacted to Darwin, I think we can understand something very interesting about London Scientific Society and perhaps understand something about Darwin and about the impact Darwin had. So I want to, like several of the other speakers, perhaps take on some slight myths that surround Darwin. 
And perhaps the most important one that it comes up again and again this year is the idea that The Origin of Species is a deeply divisive book. Uh, Steve Jones alluded this morning to the fact that the standard science versus religion story is largely myth. I would entirely agree. Time prohibits me going into that in detail. But this notion that men of science and men of religion are at each other's throats as soon as Darwin publishes is just nonsense. But it looks more plausible to say that it, the theory divides the scientific community into pro- and anti-Darwinian camps. But that's the, that's the topic I want to try and, and question today. Is that really true, or is that a good historical explanation of some of the divisions that clearly result? And I want to argue that there may be other ways of looking at this. So let me start with Owen and Huxley. These two clash very famously on a number of occasions, but in particular, they clash over the differences between humans and apes and over the brains of humans and apes. And they have a ferocious debate about the anatomy of the brain, whether, as Owen claims, it contains, the human brain contains a unique organ, the hippocampus minor, which is not found in any of the great apes. And this becomes so well known that it's actually satirized by Charles Kingsley, famously in The Water Babies, where it becomes the hippopotamus debate. And this is the end piece to the Kingsley's edition, a rather lovely image of very recognizably Owen and Huxley examining a water baby in spirits, preserved in a bottle, about to dissect it and settle this argument. Um, this picture is so well known that Julian Huxley, Thomas Henry's grandson, brother of Aldous the novelist, who was a distinguished biologist himself, recounts that when he was growing up, he knew this picture and was convinced that this water baby must be in the house somewhere, that his grandfather... And he searched for it diligently for days without finding it. So this is a, well, a well-known debate. To try and understand how and why these men clashed, we would traditionally look at is issues like this. This is Owen. He's an anti-Darwinian. Why is he an anti-Darwinian? What kinds of things would we, would we point to? First of all, he's from a slightly older generation. He's a little older than Darwin, quite a bit older than Huxley and Hooker. So he comes out of a slightly different scientific world, a world in particular in which patronage rules. It's who you know as much as what you know that gets you uh, places in this world. He's a staunch Anglican, and he's particularly reliant on Anglican uh, circles for patronage, the Oxford, Cambridge, London, uh, Anglican gentry, the people with power and influence. They help him to get ahead. And he's politically conservative, and this is kind of predictable. It goes with the Anglicanism. It goes with him being an old fart. All of this is of a piece. So we have this kind of picture. This is Owen and where he's coming from. And we contrast him with Huxley. And again, the explanatory framework looks pretty straightforward. He's pro-Darwinian. Why? He's young. He's aggressive. He's a young man in a hurry. He comes from a very humble background. Actually, not that unlike Owen's, but even more humble. Um, and he's impatient. And he sees the... Uh, the Anglican gentry is the kind of people who are in his way. He's, he's aggressively agnostic. In fact, he's the man who coins the word agnostic to describe his position. And he was, as I'm sure you all know, the kind of man who couldn't see a bishop without picking a fight. So the kind of people who got Owen his job and so on were the kind of people he distinctly resented, people who were blocking careers based on merit, careers like his. And, of course, he's a political progressive, relatively speaking, certainly when he's younger. So we get a kind of contrast, these two different men coming from two different backgrounds, having two different sets of values. This explains why they take opposite views in the Darwin argument and why they clash in the way that they do. Well, does it? This is the kind of way that this debate becomes public 
Owen and Huxley are famously satirized. Um, and this image, of course, refers to the famous anti-slavery image, which Darwin and Emma's families, the Wedgwood Darwin families, are very involved in the anti-slavery cause. And the question of, am I not a man and a brother, um, has a very powerful set of resonances. Am I satire a man? Pray tell me who can and settle my place in the scale. A man in ape shape, an anthropoid ape, or a monkey deprived of his tail? And this very public battle about where we stand in nature and how, if at all, we are related to other animals is part of the whole kind of Darwinian furore. But I want to look at these two guys in a rather different context. And very simply, I want to put them in the context of the institutions within which they shape their careers. Now, Owen, of course, is director of the Hunterian Museum. His collection actually stood more or less where we are now uh, when he was in charge of it. This is where the museum was, Simon tells me. And uh, he relies on those patronage networks, the patronage of the College of Surgeons and so on, to get him this job. And then he shapes a very important career. And Darwin is very useful to him in that career, as he is to Darwin, in describing the beagle fossils and so on. He then becomes superintendent of the Natural History Department of the British Museum just down the road. And in those days, of course, the British Museum contains all Hans Sloan's former collections and the many things that have been added to them over the uh, decades since. And it's bursting at the seams. So Owen is given superintendents in the natural history collections, but he's convinced from the day he gets the job that they need more space. They just cannot manage. So he campaigns long and hard over many, many years to get Parliament to fund a purpose-built natural history museum. And he is eventually successful. In 1870, Parliament approves the idea, but as you can see, it takes more than a decade to actually build it. And as I'm sure you're all very familiar, Waterhouse Hawkins' brilliant monument to the kind of natural history science, this cathedral of science, where I'll be taking my six-year-old next Saturday. This is the kind of pinnacle of Owen's career, the battle to get this museum and then to run it and to keep it and to keep its collections intact and to ensure that it is the foremost natural history collection in the country and one of the most important in the world. And I think the drive to build and maintain this institution, to prevent it being threatened by any other institution, is very important to own sense of who he is and where he's going. And what he does in his later years and his reaction to Darwinism is to some extent shaped by these career concerns about where he's going. And I'll come back to that and explain why I think that is. Now, if we look at Huxley by contrast, Huxley, uh, as I say, comes from a very humble background. He qualifies as a doctor, becomes a naval surgeon, an assistant surgeon on the rattlesnake voyage, standard way to make a name for yourself He's very unlike Darwin. He's not a self-funded gentlemanly companion to the captain. He's a hard-working naval officer, subject to naval discipline. When he gets back, he manages to get half pay from the Admiralty to write up his results, to publish the collections. How does he get that? Owen gets him that. Owen is his patron in these early years. And Owen had, from Huxley's account, a distinctly haughty manner and expected you to be very grateful for the crumbs that he threw you. And this is, I think, one of the sources of the friction between him and Huxley. Huxley has a good deal of difficulty finding a steady position for himself. And what he does is build up a number of positions in different places. So he lectures at the School of Mines. He's the Falerian Professor of Physiology at the Royal Institution. He has to do several of these jobs, often simultaneously, as well as writing a lot for the press and so on, in order to make a living. He's in a position of having to wait a long time to get married. He meets 
Henrietta Heathorn, his, the love of his life while he's in Australia on the rattlesnake, and it's almost a decade before he can afford to bring her back to Britain and marry her. So he's got a personal resentment about the difficulty of getting ahead in science, the difficulty of earning a living from science. But what you'll see immediately is that he doesn't have an institutional home in the way that Owen has. He moves from place to place, and he has to put together a living from a number of different sources. So he has a different set of allegiances, one of which is to the public, to the idea of being a public entertainer, a lecturer, a writer, somebody who is a, a great show-off and a great uh, showman. And one of the things that draws him to Darwin is that it's lovely, juicy, controversial stuff. So he writes to Darwin. He gives these lectures to working men after the origin appears, and he writes to Darwin how, you know, my working men are all uh, right behind me. I'll have them all believing they're monkeys by Monday, you know. So it's great stuff to get a popular audience going. Um, different set of concerns. Now, why might Owen's opposition to Darwinism be shaped by his institutional connections? I want to examine that by looking at a slightly less familiar story than the Owen-Huxley clash to look at the conflicts that he gets into with Hooker. Now, this is Joseph Hooker, one of the, I think, great beards of the Victorian scientific world. He gets more eccentric and ridiculous as he gets older. This is mid-period beard. He has a very strikingly similar career to Huxley's in some respects. He gets his start as a man of science aboard HMS Erebus, a naval surveying vessel, where he, like Huxley, is a junior surgeon. He's a naval officer. He's paid to go on there. He also gets half pay from the Admiralty for a couple of years afterwards to write up. And again, he's dependent on patronage, although in his case, it's his father who helps him uh, get the, the gig because William Hooker, his father, is a well-connected man of science. He's a Regis Professor of Botany at Glasgow University when Joseph sets sail on the Erebus. By the time Joseph gets back, his father is director of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, which had just been taken over by the government out of the royal family's hands. William Hooker doesn't have a lot of money. This is actually not the reason he gets this job. Is actually he's willing to take a lower salary than his main rival. So he's not a rich man, but he knows a lot of people, and he pulls strings to get Joe onto this voyage and then to get him the Admiralty half pay when he gets back. And I think Hooker shares with Huxley some resentment about the patronage networks and the need to do all this kind of bowing and scraping and groveling to get where you want to go. He finds it very hard to get a paid position. So one of the first things he goes for is the lectureship in botany at Edinburgh University, which he fails to get despite having a great thick wad of testimonials from everybody from the, the Prime Minister down. This doesn't cut enough ice with the Edinburgh City Council who want an experienced lecturer who's going to teach medical men to recognize plants from which to make medicines. He doesn't get that job. He has to go off traveling again. And like Huxley, he has to delay marriage for several years while he goes to the Himalayas to do more collecting, publish more books, build up his reputation. And it's only finally in 1855 that he manages to get the job. A job is created for him at Kew as deputy director to his father, who is now 70 years old, and the government realizes that Kew is now so big he can't manage on his own. So the institution of Kew is very important to Hooker's career. Um, it's very important to his father's work, and he uses the collections, his father's collections initially, in writing his books and making a name for himself, he adds greatly to those collections through his own travels and so on. And then once in, from 1855, he gets this job. And then in 1865, his father dies, and he inherits Q from his father. This is a public service position. But he does literally inherit it because his father leaves his herbarium collection, that's all the plants, the dried plants, and the library, 
which he has built up out of his own pocket over many years to the nation on condition that Joe gets the job. So this may look like a career based on merit to Joseph Hooker, but I'm not sure that other people would have seen it in quite that way. So this is the institution that Hooker's built up, and it's an interesting contrast to, Q, to the British Museum in a number of ways, not the least of which is that respectable middle-class ladies and gentlemen, gardening enthusiasts and people like that are very important to the survival and existence of Kew. And there are tensions over the degree to which this is intended to be a public park and the degree to which it's supposed to be doing serious scientific research. And there is a debate that goes on about what kind of institution Kew should be, whether the Hooker's vision of it as a great scientific research institution is really the appropriate one for what becomes an increasingly popular day out for Londoners, especially once the railway reaches Kew. So this clash, what I want to say about this clash between Owen and Hooker, which I'm about to describe, is that in some ways it's better understood as a clash between two institutions. And they're competing in several senses. But they're particularly what's being debated is what kind of institutions are they supposed to be? Who is their audience? Why should the nation be funding them? And what is their future going to be? So here's a rather less familiar caricature than the monkey I showed you earlier. This is Joseph Hooker having his ear tweaked by John Ball in the guise of a headmaster who is telling him, you're more trouble than all the rest of the boys put together and with your bullying and stupidity, and I have a great mind to expel you. Mind you behave better after the holidays, or I will. And you may just about be able to read the name on the slate, which is on the desk next to him. It says Ayrton. Now, this is a controversy which is really unfamiliar even to people like me who are serious history of botany nerds. Uh, it's not well known to the public, so I'll give you a brief overview of what was involved. This is a punch caricature of uh, the cabinet uh, in the early 1870s, and the man I want to talk about is this prepossessing character over here, Acton Smee Ayrton. Um, in this cartoon, uh, which is about the, the odd collection of personalities in the cabinet, Ayrton is saying, and mind you're all polite and gentlemanly, do you hear? And as you can see, the caricaturist has clearly picked him out of someone who is not, by nature, polite and gentlemanly. He was notoriously boorish and aggressive. He was the Liberal MP for Tower Hamlets, very much a believer in reform, very much an opponent of corruption, as he saw it. And thanks to his support... Um, uh, for Gladstone, over a number of years, he was rewarded when the ministry comes in uh, with the, being the first commissioner of works. That means he's responsible for both Kew and the British Museum. He is the ultimate political master of both these institutions. And he gets into this broil with Hooker in the early 70s. Almost the minute he takes over the job, he and Hooker start fighting with each other. I'm not, the details of this are really quite tedious, even if you're very interested in the topic, so I won't go into too many. What they really revolve around is uh, the limits of Hooker's authority at Kew. In his father's day, he and his father enjoyed a very informal, friendly relationship with Ayrton's predecessor, and they'd basically been left to run things as they saw fit. Their expertise and the degree to which they had personally put themselves, their money, and their collections at the service of the nation at Kew was recognized. Um, and the salaries they received were regarded as a kind of honorarium, as a sort of small token of appreciation from a grateful nation to what was basically disinterested service. Ayrton is not having any of this, and they clash, for example, over the commissioning of new boilers for the hothouses. Hooker takes the view, Joseph Hooker now, that uh, as he is the botanist and he knows about the plants, he is the only one qualified uh, to commission new boilers, and he will employ his favorite firm of builders to put them in place. 
Eden takes the, I think, not unreasonable view that public works paid for by the public purse should be put out to tender by the uh, clerk of works who he has just appointed. And uh, Hooker is offended by this and runs off to the Prime Minister complaining that he's being treated with disrespect by this boorish uh, gentleman. Um, and this runs over into the papers, and there is a considerable degree of interest in this over a couple of years, which actually ends with Hooker having to apologize for the fact that he's publicly called Ayrton a liar. Uh, so he actually shoots himself in the foot by being hot-tempered and impulsive. But the press all say, look, you know, the issue here is who is the gentleman, and it's clearly Hooker. Um, so the issues of class and manners and so on are actually much more important than issues of scientific expertise. But it's, as an aside, it's interesting that Hooker is always regarded as one of the kind of professionalizers of science. Um, it's clear in many ways he's the kind of last great gentlemanly naturalist. If there's a professionalizer here, it's actually Ayrton talking about competitive civil service exams and things being put out to tender. But in the wake of the, the, the royal, as it's, it's bubble, it's fading and uh, the apology's been accepted and it's all being forgotten, the Saturday Review, who've reported every stage of this, uh, they say the only useful thing that's come out of it is that it has brought to light the project which is hatching for the flinging of the South Kensington shoe over Kew Gardens and making the herbarium a washpot for coal. Now this is, I'm sure you're all perfectly familiar as a reference to the 60th Psalm, uh, Edom, uh, over Edom will I cast my shoe, Moab is my washpot. I don't know quite what that means, but there's a triumphal tone there that you can really not miss. Sir Henry Cole is the public servant responsible for the South Kensington site where the Natural History Museum and the other buildings are going to be built. So what is being hinted at here is that the herbarium, the, the heart of the scientific work at Kew, is going to be taken away and given to the British Museum. This is certainly Hooker's view of it. He writes to his friend James Hector in New Zealand, the brute Ayrton has set his heart on disestablishing Kew as a scientific institution. And his reasons for suspecting this are pretty obvious. Ayrton actually said to Parliament, asked whether it is desirable on the grounds of science, public utility, efficiency, or economy that two museums, the rival herbaria at the British Museum in Kew, should be kept up with their libraries and staff of public servants to prosecute the science of botany. Why do we have two national botanical collections? Perhaps they should be merged. Perhaps they need a single director, particularly because the Kensington Museum will be close to one station and Kew Gardens close to another on a short line of railway with telegraphic communication between one, inst between one institution. And the sum now spent on the collections, library, and establishment for botany at Kew might be expended in completing and improving the establishment at Kensington or be saved. And I think it's, again, very interesting just to go back to the talks we had this morning, to think about the railway and the telegraph, the quintessential Victorian technologies, which, as the Victorians themselves say, obliterate time and space, are being brought to bear on this as a reason for merging these two museums. So we'll have a kind of virtual museum over two sites with a single director in charge of both institutions. The te telegraph and the railway, which are transforming the lives of ordinary Londoners, uh, are going to make this scientific reform possible and will save money in the process. Now, because of the dispute with Ayrton, all the parliamentary papers and so on are published. And among them is an, uh, a piece written by Owen giving his view on what should be done with these collections, which is how Owen becomes part of this story. Ayrton had talked to him, and uh, uh, Owen had given him a written guidance as to what he should do, and the scheme for merging the museum herbaria is Owen's scheme. He actually compares Kew to the menagerie at Regent's Park, to the zoo, whose chief application is the instructive pleasure of the public. 
And he points out that they don't have a big zoological collection in glass jars. That's the British Museum's job. The duplicate herbaria, the two rival collections, are the result of the misapplication of opportunities and influence of the present director of the Royal Gardens at Kew. So Hooker himself is personally responsible for this empire-building exercise that's resulted in this waste of money, this duplication of, ex of effort. And not content with having a go at Hooker's motives in this, Owen actually has a smack at botany itself. The scientific work of which a herbarium is the instrument has been defined by a great wit and original thinker as attaching barbarous binomials to dried foreign weeds. This roughly expresses the net result of the application of a museum of dried plants. <laughs> I've not actually been able to trace this quote. I suspect the great wit and original thinker was Richard Owen, but I'd be interested to hear otherwise. The paranoia underpinning all of this was mutual. And it's actually Hooker and Darwin and their allies who've set this hair running through the friends that they had at Nature, the newly founded scientific journal, Sir Norman Lockyer's Nature, which in 1870, just at the time that the Natural History Museum has been, uh, the funding for it has been agreed, they mentioned that they had been favoured with a copy of a memorial drawn up as long ago as 1858. Interesting date. In 1858, when Owen is campaigning hard to get his new museum, the writers of this memorial proposed to the government precisely the opposite scheme to the one that Owen was putting forward in the 1870s, which is that it's the British Museum that should be stripped of its plant collections and they should all be given to Kew, precisely on the same grounds of efficiency, cost and time-saving. Why has this been resurrected in 1870? The editors say, well, you know, it's in the news, of course. The government's just approved this money. Now's the time to have a discussion about the rational, proper way to organize these collections. And if Owen might perhaps have felt that there was a conspiracy afoot to rob him of the jewel in his crown, the list of signatories to this original 1858 memorial would have been very interesting. Many of these names I'm sure familiar to, to you. But Bentham, Harvey, Henfrey, Henslow, Lindley, Busk, Carpenter are all very good friends of Hooker's. And the last two names are particularly good friends of Hooker's. Hooker himself is not on this list. Remember, in 1858, he's just deputy director of Kew. He's not that famous, that well-known, but I suspect politically it was better to keep his name off the list for that reason. So there is an alliance here at work favoring one institution over another. But this, of course, is pre-the origin. This is before we've divided over scientific issues to do with evolution. And I think the rival claims of these institutions and rival conceptions of what science should be, what its place in the nation should be, who should be in charge of it, and particularly this clash over different kinds of patronage, different kinds of support, and how that's going to work in practice. Who is going to exercise patronage? These are the things that underlie this clash. And I think there's a very clear sense in which Darwinism becomes something which is taken up by various people to help them pursue particular kinds uh, of scientific agendas that don't actually have anything to do with evolution. This is Kew's new herbarium wing, built in the 1870s. There is an empire being built here. This herbarium is getting bigger all the time. It's now the biggest in the world. It attained that status very early on in its life. Um, and this, as I say, is built just at the time that the Natural History Museum is on the drawing board. You want a herbarium, you've got to fill it. This is what they're actually fighting over. This is the core of the dispute. This is what a herbarium actually looks like. These specimens were collected by Sir Joseph Banks on Captain Cook's voyage. This is actually the type of specimen of Banksia serrata, the genus named in Banks's honor. 
Where's that herbarium? At the British Museum, because Banks left all his collections and uh, his assistant, Robert Brown, got the job of looking after them, just as Joe got the job of looking after his dance collections, he left them to the nation in his will on the proviso that Brown got the job. And Brown guarded his territory at the British Museum very fiercely, to the extent, according to the hookers, of not sharing so much as a single leaf with anyone else. Um, but the, the ownership of this treasure, accumulated by private means, not through government money, is what's really at the heart of this. Who, the person with the biggest herbarium wins in disputes about classification and scientific expertise. But there's a real clash between the claims of these different institutions and about the kind of institution that Q is going to be. And I want to finish off by talking very quickly about this man, a much less familiar na name, John Edward Gray. Gray was one of Owen's underlings at the British Museum. He was keeper of the zoological department, as you can see, for very, very many years. Now, he's a, a name that is well known to Darwin scholars because he was a very important assistant to Darwin he lent the National Collection of Barnacles to Darwin. He put them in boxes and sent them down to Down House so that Darwin could write his barnacle books. Um, who you knew mattered more than what you knew uh, with a vengeance. And my friend Gordon McQuatt, who's worked a lot on Gray, has argued, and I find this very persuasive, that people like Gray are actually kind of much more typical of working Victorian naturalists than people like Darwin are. And one of the things that's interesting about Gray is that he doesn't have any big part in the standard histories of Darwinism and the impact of Darwin on the sciences because he never took a public stand on Darwinism. He kept quiet. And it's interesting that he owed his job to Owen, but he was a great friend of Darwin's. He's really divided over the camps, and he found it obviously politically and institutionally expedient not to come out aggressively on one side or the other. And I find similar things at work in Hooker's career. When I started working on Hooker, I was struck by the fact that people couldn't seem to make up their minds, historians couldn't seem to make up their minds, whether he was a kind of closet Darwinist waiting to go public with his support for Darwin, or whether he was actually a late or maybe even a reluctant convert. And when you read Hooker's art, uh, essay in which he first announces publicly his support for Darwin, this is his introduction to the flora of Australia that comes out just a month after The Origin of Species, and he says, you know, my full support for the ingenious theorizings of Mr. Darwin and Mr. Wallace and so on, but he seems constantly to be hedging his bets. And I think historians have found it hard to understand why this is. And my feeling after many years of working on this is that one of the things that what Hooker's doing is he's saying, look, this is a great revolution in science. This is going to give us a totally new rationale for what we do, why classification works, why we see these patterns in nature, what they actually mean. These are, as Darwin says in The Origin, the propinquity of descent is the hidden link that explains why uh, we can and do classify in the way we do. So we've got a properly philosophical underpinning, a real justification for what we've been doing for centuries. But what Hooker absolutely doesn't want, again for institutional and career reasons, is for the world of botany to be divided into pro and anti-Darwinian botanists. So he's constantly stressing, look, the only difference between a Darwinian botanist and an anti-Darwinian one is the Darwinian knows that at some point in the infinitely distant future, the things he describes as species will need to be reclassified because they're evolving. But over the timescale of individual lives and individual institutions, it doesn't make any difference. So there's something kind of profoundly conservative about this revolution that doesn't change anything. And I think that conservatism is actually one of the things that rather appeals to Hooker about Darwinism, which again is, a, is an antidote to that picture of Darwin shaking the world 
uh, and upsetting everything and dividing the men of science. Men of science are actually divided over things like institutional loyalties, like patronage networks and so on. And some of them take up Darwinism as a stick with which to beat their enemies, Thomas Henry Huxley most obviously. But the point I want to leave you with is that if we, if we think that they kind of, they just read Darwin and thought, yes, I agree, or no, I don't, and that explains their then affiliations and conflicts and so on, I think we're missing a much wider story about how science is actually working in the Victorian period. And the way Darwin, the reception of Darwinism is really explained by the needs of the people who took up Darwin, what they were trying to achieve, where they were trying to get with their careers and their science, what use Darwin was to them. So Darwin, as it were, becomes a footnote in everyone else's story, a rather ghostly presence in the background, which is the whole point of my work, really, <laughs> rather than being the central explanatory fact about everything. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Now, um, our final speaker of the day is um, going to, in a way, be returning to our first speaker of the day by looking at the, the masses of London. And I think that when, when we're looking at the legacy of Darwinism, that perhaps some of the images that Linda showed us to start off with, the dores and the frits of the, the seething mass of London people, um, it, all, it all seems sort of tied together quite well. Um, Greta Jones is Professor of History at the University of Ulster, and she's Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. Um, Greta's well known for her work on Darwinism as it relates to the history of medicine, um, including recently um, she's been doing some work on the influence of socialism on Alfred Russell Wallace's um, 1858 paper. Um, she's going to be talking today about mapping social evolution, social Darwinism in London. Thank you very much, Brett. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And um, I um, have no pictures to show you, I'm afraid. Um, I'm a little bit old-fashioned, and uh, most of what I... Um, convey to you will be um, by words only. I also have another confession to make, which is that I'm going to talk about London, but I'm a Mancunian. So if there's occasionally a sour note creeps into this address, um, please uh, forgive me. Um, I also, referring back to Linda's original uh, paper this morning, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the capital of the world in the 19th century was Manchester. However, I'm going to talk about London, and this is a, an address in which the working classes will make an appearance, because uh, much of what I talk is about the relationships between classes in London, and it's also about what you might call an imaginative construction of London using natural history and using ideas from Darwinism. I think as we um, go through it, there'll be kind of really four parts to it. The first, talking about London in particular, it's nature and um, working class within London. Then going on to talk about early attempts to um, classify and explain London according to natural history uh, terms. Then uh, talking about what we might call a crisis uh, occurring in the 1880s in London, and I think throughout um, uh, Britain as a whole, brought about by um, economic depression and the revival of trades unionism and socialism. And... Um, 
talking about, um, in that context, the impact of Darwinism in the debate that uh, took place in the 1880s about the social question. And I think I'll end up with what, what, what I think is really quite a critical view um, of this debate and its significance in what you might call um, British cultural and social history. So let's begin, um, first of all, by talking about the importance of urbanization in uh, England as a whole. Um, it's a really significant transformation. Um, all cities grew in this time, um, some like Manchester and London in very spectacular fashion. Manchester from around 75,000 in 1800 to over 700 million by 1910, but London's growth was even more spectacular. There are about a million in 1800, but over 7 million by uh, 1910. But, al but also, it's very important, and uh, many historians of London have pointed this out, that London's not typical of England's industrial uh, revolution. Most 19th century urban growth was based on industrial development or because a city was at the hub of communications. Uh, it was a new railway town or it was a port serving the industrial economy. But London, though she saw the amount of goods increasing through her ports, was, as Gareth Stedman Jones, the very important historian of London, uh, points out, it actually deindustrialized in the 19th century, losing many of her industries to the new manufacturing centers of the Midlands and North. So apart from the docks, transport, gas, subsequently to play a very important part in the working class political history of London, most of London's manufacturing, or a very large proportion at least, remained small scale. It had a vast retail trade. It was a center of administration and government. It was a place of fashion in which the rich would spend the London season. And much of the retail and manufacturing industries relied upon the season for their annual income. It remained really a city of small businesses and shops with a huge concentration of service industries serving the large population and the more specialized luxury market. And this makes it very distinctive from, for example, um, what Marx and Engels saw as significant in Manchester, where the chimneys of the textile industry stretched almost unbroken from the city center, for example, to the out outskirts of Oldham in the east. And I uh, took a bus journey quite recently. Um, these are closed now. The mills are closed. It's only industrial heritage uh, industry which has stopped them. Uh, most of them, um, many of them have been pulled down. But on the bus, I counted 10 on one side, 12 chimneys on another, five behind, another five forward. Uh, the bus moved on, and then there was another 15 there, five there, three there, 10. And it went on and on through a journey of about three or four for five miles, and you can imagine at the height of the Industrial Revolution when they're all working, what an absolutely tremendous impact this must have made on the visitor. And it was a city, Manchester, in which the social composition of the districts around the factories were largely solidly working class and industrial. Instead, in London, the social landscape there was more variegated, complex, harder to penetrate, more closed off to the casual eye. But also, in a way, and I'm going to talk about what, you might call, what were called at the time in the 19th century the nomad class in, in, in uh, London, there were also parts of working class London and the London poor which were more visible. Historians have stressed that there is a large class of unskilled, underemployed, casual or se seasonal labour in London, which lived at the margins of existence in the great city. 
Now, I want to, to say this is a very traditional view of London in the 19th century, but, um, and it makes it quite unique among uh, uh, British cities. Not completely new, unique, but this is an important part of its uniqueness, of its difference. But it can be exaggerated. There were few large-scale concentrations of industrial manufacture, but there were places like Alfred Yarrow's shipyard on the Isle of Dogs, and then he moved it to Poplar, uh, which before he eventually moved to Clyde uh, in Scotland in 1906, but it produced river vessels and even ships for the Royal Navy. There was Cubitt's engineering works on the Gray's Inn Road and the Westinghouse Brake uh, Company at King's Cross, so um, there were um, places of industrial activity in London. And the historian Mark Brodie also argues that though there's definitely a layer of casual, poverty-stricken people, typical of many accounts of London in the 19th century, there were also a substantial strata of relatively prosperous artisans and workmen. Yet Brodie concedes that even if historians have understated the respectable East End... Casual labour in London was a very significant part of the landscape and it created what Brodie calls a conservative, fatalist culture based on short-term considerations to say nothing of what uh, historians have pointed to, the hedonism, drinking, gambling, violence, which sometimes accompanied it. In the 1880s, large-scale immigration into London, mainly Jewish and from the Russian Empire, added to this sense of London as an unknown city which needed an effort to understand and an East End which was unsettled and constantly on the move. Right. In the 1840s, the journalist Henry Mayhew collected information and anecdotes about the London poor for the Morning Chronicle, which were eventually published in London Labour and the London Poor in 1861. He said, those that obtain their living in the streets of the metropolis are a very large and varied class. Indeed, the means resorted to in order to pick up a crust, as the people call it, in the public thoroughfares are so multifarious that the mind is long baffled in the attempts to reduce them to scientific order or classification. And it's here where you begin to see uh, metaphors from natural history creep into accounts from London, because Mayhew um, starts to use the um, work of the Bristol physician, Dr. James Cowles Pritchard, which, who published in 1813 uh, The Physical History of Man and in um, 1843 The Natural History of Man. And these two accounts, which are basically anthropological um, and physical descriptions of the races, um, are used and adopted by Mayhew in his uh, description of the London poor. Now, James Cowles Pritchard was in many ways, um, his work on race prefigured Darwin's in that Pritchard defended the notion of descent from one stock and the original unity of mankind. And he argued that races were varieties of the human species, not separate species, and that geographical spread of peoples contributed towards racial individuation. So uh, Mayhew um, says, it is a curious fact that no one has yet applied the above facts to the explanation of certain anomalies in the present state of society among ourselves. And he argues that in London in particular, 
uh, we can use uh, Pritchard's classifications. And we must therefore use the order of races as a means of comprehending the more readily those of the vagabonds and outcasts of our own. And he says about London, we like the Kaffirs, fellas and Finns are surrounded by wandering hordes. He quotes Dr. Pritchard saying there are three principal varieties in the form of the head and other physical characteristics. The um, hunters and savage inhabitants of the forest have a form of head which is mostly distinguished by the term prognathus, in, in indicating a, prolongation, a pro prolongation or extension of forward of the jaws. A second shape of head being principally to such races as wander with their herds and flocks over the vast plains. These nations have broad lozenge shaped faces. The most civilised races, those who leave, live by the arts of cultivated life, cultivated life have one that is oval or elliptical and he says he contends Mayhew that those who roamed the streets of London exhibiting exhibited among them the physical and cultural characteristics derived from uh, Pritchard's racial descriptions paupers beggars and outcasts possessing nothing but what they acquire by depredation from the industrious provident and civilized portions of the community the heads of these london nomads are remarkable for the greater development of the jaws and cheekbones and they have a secret language these people of their own or slang as it is called for the concealment of their designs i assume that um Steve Jones's reference to Welsh this morning was partly uh, uh, the use of this, this idea. The nomad, he says, is distinguished from the civilised man by his repugnance to regular and continuous labour, by his want of providence, by his passion for stupefying herbs and roots and liquor, by insensibility to pain, immoderate love of gambling and libidinous dances, by his delight in perilous sports, by the absence of chastity among his women, and by his utter irreligion. Now, um, Mayhew's description of London's nomad race was not just a scientific study, in fact, not primarily a scientific study. It was entertainment. Throughout the 19th century, London provided satisfaction for curiosity, sensation, scandal, moral panic, revulsion, purience, horror, fear, and amusement, and this sold newspapers. Curiosity was stimulated by the opaqueness of the city, which grew more pronounced as the century wore on. The rapid unplanned growth produced a flight to the suburbs, by the better off, a flight away from overcrowding, contagious diseases, smells, unplanned growth, and in the early part of the century, political turmoil. Suburban life was largely confined to those social classes who could afford regular railway fares, and railways in the 19th century were still quite expensive. This is why parts of urban Britain become a closed book, except to the representatives of law and order, the churches to an extent, and the sanitary inspector. Unraveling London, therefore, becomes a topic of great interest, and it carries with it an edge of disapproval, given the, given the discovery of classes like the nomad class, seemingly so separate from respectable middle-class life. And as the century wore on, it also carried with it an edge of fear. Now, looking at London through the lens of natural history it was therefore something that predated Darwin. 
Mayhew's nomad um, race went on being discussed right to the end of the 19th century by Arnold White, for example, in a contemporary review of 1885. He wrote an article on the nomad poor of London. But the appearance of Darwinism in 1859 added to the great variety of cultural and political discourses about um, natural history and Darwinism, which you can say crisscrossed London's life. The first way in which Darwin changed the cultural nature of London significantly was its contribution to the secularist movement. London had one of the lowest church attendances in the country compared with other cities, less than 20%. Religious affiliation was still important. It worked in politics. How you um, worshipped affected how you voted in the 19th and 20th century. The first election, which probably was on class lines, was in 1918, even the 1906 election. It was still largely determined by religious denomination. Um, So that um, although religious affiliation was important, uh, Non-conformity, for example, had little influence over London Labour politics, making it rather different uh, from, uh, for example, parts of the West Riding and the uh, Midlands. But secularism and socialism were significant. This secularism filtered itself post-1859 through Darwinism. So not only did the secularist movement in London produce cheap editions of Darwin, Huxley and Spencer, aimed at the better-off working man, but street-corner oratory spread a Darwinian message. Beatrice Webb, in her diary, um, described an encounter with orators in Victoria Park in the East End on a Sunday afternoon in May 1887. Among them, she um, goes on, there was a messenger from the Hall of Science. He was explaining to an attentive audience of working men that man was an animal and nothing but an animal. His, the orator's, face was lined with sensuality and moved by a shallow quickness and assertiveness of thought. He used scientific phrases quoted freely from Huxley, Darwin and German physiologists and assumed a certain impartiality on his treatment of rival religious theories of man's development. So here's Darwin, um, spoken to by um, socialist secularists uh, on street corners in Victoria Park on Sunday and Uh, spreading the name and gospel as they interpret it um, of Darwin. The second way in which it crisscrossed London was in a dialogue about Malthus, largely promoted by the activities of the Malthusian League founded in 1877 and whose paper, the Malthusian, appeared in 1879. Now, the Malthusian League is seen historically as significant for the promotion of contraception, and in a way this is true. But there was another important aspect was how it entangled itself in the politics of working-class London. Tom Mann, who becomes one of the leaders of the London Dock Strike in 1889, records in his memoirs reading the views of the Malthusian League in the late 1870s that the cause of poverty was unlimited multiplication. He felt at the time, to quote, that he did not feel equal to meeting the many arguments advanced by the Malthusians, nor could I convince myself that they were right. When he began the process of self-education in the 1870s, of which science formed an important part, he says, socialism was known only to a very few persons, and no socialist organization existed at this time. The visit of the American socialist Henry George to Britain in the late 1870s changed this, and man moved very rapidly from an enthusiasm 
for Henry George's vision of the single tax through to the Marxist socialism of the Social Democratic Federation, which was founded in 1881. And this meant that his um, debate with Malth Malthusian ideas um, over the issue of poverty among the poor, um, you know, he began to resolve it in the direction of um, Marxist socialism for a start. We should also remember that Alfred Russell Wallace, co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection, shared many of the cultural attributes of the reading and thinking London artisan. He too had received an early political education in a hall of science just behind the Tottenham Court Road. He followed the doctrines of the socialist uh, Robert Owen, but also he too rediscovered his uh, socialist ideals in the late 1870s through the agency of Henry George. He criticized the application of Malthusian ideas to social questions. He was not a secularist, but a spiritualist, but certainly he had abandoned conventional Christianity um, in his early life. And he was embraced by that community of London radicals and socialists. There are frequent references to Wallace as the exemplification of Darwinism in the socialist press at this time. He shared an intellectual platform with the community, contributing in 1897 an article to the book Forecasts of the Coming Century, published by the Labour Press, which included contributions from Tom Mann, William Morris, Bernard Shaw, Edward Carpenter, and the Darwinian popularizer and novelist, Grant Allen. So um, there's two ways to a working class audience. There is a versions of Darwinism circulating and um, ideas from uh, Darwinism which are being debated. But the most well-known way in which um, Darwinism, in a sense, inter interpolated itself with discourses in London was in the um, issue of the crisis which occurred in the 1880s. Um, now, um, when you look at the history of capitalism in Britain, 1830s and 40s are very difficult times because, believe it or not, there was a series of bank failures. There were financial crises due to an unregulated banking system which was vulnerable to fraud and speculation. And this was the time at which Marx developed his um, ideas that capitalism would, in the long run, collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, a conclusion with which many respectable capitalist economists also agreed. So, um, however, in the 1850s and 60s, there were, um, capitalism moved into very smooth waters. It was a period of stability and prosperity. And at that time, the market um, capitalism approached closest it had ever done in the 19th century to the notion of the invisible hand and a million individual acts of self-interest which together increased wealth. Herbert Spencer in that decade coined the phrase survival of the fittest and in a sense Herbert, Herbert Spencer's evolution, uh, evolutionary ideas were the exemplification of this very utopian view of how capitalism worked. By the late 1880s this view was in a sorry state economic depression had occurred in the 1870s. There was a rise in uh, Britain's, uh, Britain's industrial predominance was being challenged. And the 1880s are well known, especially in London, which became the seat of a very um, uh, important conflict, which was to affect the way politics were going to be conducted uh, right up to the First World War and beyond. Um, the uh, 
There are relatively well-known events, the unemployment riots of February 1886 and November 1887, uh, in which both cases there was an incursion into the West End of London of East End unemployed, leading to riots and um, police action, a pitched battle in Trafalgar Square um, in uh, November 1887. There was a revival of trade unionism in the 1880s, which was particularly unique because it was the first time you got the creation of unskilled and semi-skilled trade unions. Uh, most of the early ones in the 1850s and 60s had been from skilled working men. Um, industrial militancy led to two very famous strikes, the uh, Bryant and May strike of 1886 and the Great Dock strike of 1889, which involved Tom Mann, John Burns and Ben Tillett. Uh, all of them at, this, at that time were members of the Marxist Social Democratic Federation. Um, London begins to look threatening not just to the respectable individual, but to the whole social system. So an entry from Webb's diary noted, in, this is 1st of February 1890, noted that London is in a ferment. Strikes are the order of the day. The new trade unionism with its magnificent conquests of the docks is striding along with an arrogance. The socialists led by a small set of able young men are manipulating London. And, uh, but I, from the peculiarity of my social position, should be in the midst of all parties, sympathetic with all. I have new acquaintances among the leading socialists, but as a background, all those respectable and highly successful men, my brothers-in-law, typical of the old regime of private property and self-interested action. And when I turn from the luxurious homes of the, these picked men of the individualist system and struggle through the East End crowd of the wrecks, the waifs, the strays of the, the civilization, and I hear the bitter cry of the 19th century working man and 19th century working uh, woman. Now, the outcome to this crisis was several. Um, an increasing attempt to moralize the poor of London by teaching Christian virtues, thrift, abstinence, and self-reliance. Uh, the most famous of this was the religious mission to London of the Salvation Army founded in 1865. But between 1884 and 1900, 26 slum settlements were founded by various religious denominations in the East End of London. The most famous and influential uh, among the political classes was Toynbee Hall, which Canon uh, Samuel Bar Barnett and his wife Henrietta set up in Whitechapel in 1884. And there, a succession of middle-class individuals, a great many of them university students, uh, went, were encouraged to live for a while, reacquaint themselves with London's poor, and if possible, elevate uh, the poor, heal the divisions that were perceived to exist between the classes and recreate order, stability and deference. And Toynbee Hall was famous because it had uh, residents like William Beveridge and Clement Attlee, both of whom spent a time there. But the poverty of the East End was by the Reverend Samuel Barnett's own admission seemingly intractable in even in the face of religious conversion. So Barnett said in 1886 in an article for the 19th century on distress in London that the study of the condition of the people receives hardly as much attention as that which Sir John Lubbock gives to the ants and the wasps. But good, bold good men discuss the poor and checks are given by irresponsible benefactors. But there are few students who reverently and patiently make observations on social conditions, accumulate facts and watch cause and events. Scientific method has won the great victories of the day, and scientific method is everywhere except in the field of human affairs, which, most, which are most important. Scientific method had, 
in Barnett's view, two sides, empirical investigation, but also the attempt to wield the story of East End poverty into a grand Darwinian uh, scheme. Henry Hindman, who led the Social Democratic um, uh, Federation, claimed in the 1880s that 25% of Londoners were living in poverty. And Charles Booth, a retired ship owner from Liverpool, started to produce what Barnett would regard as a really scientific investigation of the East End. Uh, a social investigation which he paid for out of his own prof uh, profits from his um, firm. It, it was self-financed. He used paid and unpaid investigators, including Beatrice Webb. And he um, did a street-by-street -street survey of the East End. He eventually published these in the 1890s in a whole series of volumes uh, on the life and labor of the people of London. But before the final publication of the um, uh, volumes, he had actually, um, although he was surprised and alarmed at this, confirmed Hindman's view of the extent of poverty in London. He calculated a third of the East End uh, and 25% uh, of London's population as a whole, third of the East End, but 25 of the London as a whole, had insufficient income in the 1880s to meet the basic necessities of life, which were defined very um, uh, sparsely. Now, where Darwin entered the, into the debate was in the explanation. Charles Booth, before he did the survey, he begins the survey, had a very optimistic Spencerian view of how the economy worked. But, this, but uh, his own survey shook his confidence in the nature of Spencerian economics. But this is what he said in an address to the Royal Statistical Society in May 1887 in an article on Tower Hamlets. Lack of work is not really the disease with them. The mere provision of it is therefore useless as a cure. The unemployed are, as a class, a selection of the unfit. And on the whole, those most in want are the most unfit. This is the crux of their position. In the 19th century, in, uh, in, eight, in 1887, in the periodical The 19th Century, Hindman of the SDF complained about this language. Among the cultivated minority, he said, there's a sort of unexpressed belief to the effect that if the working men were fit for anything better, then they would become part of the minority of the rich themselves. The survival of the fittest is one of those pseudo-scientific arguments which does great service in support of this view of the poor. In the same periodical in the following year, Huxley en enters the debate. Spencer's condemnation of state intervention as such irritated him because he's very much in favor of state-supported education and scientific research. Uh, and he, uh, he, in the 1880s and early 90s, he's administering sharp raps to Spencer in various ways. And in this article, he comes out as in favor of a program of moderate social reform. Um, it's more technology, higher wages because cheap labor is a false economy, sanitary improvements, state education. But he also warns Hindman and the socialists that natural selection puts limits on their utopian visions. And he goes on, so long as unlimited multiplication goes on, no social organization which has ever been devised or fiddle-faddling with the distribution of wealth will deliver society from the tendency to be destroyed by the production within itself of, in its intensest form of that struggle for existence 
the limitation of which is the object of society. This is a complex sentence which tries to convey both his belief that struggle for existence is not a desirable uh, thing, but also his attempt to use what you might call Malthusianism against the, what he regards as extreme socialism. Now, I'm, I'm getting to the end, and I hope I have a few more minutes. It's not only the liberal and conservative opinion that believed that natural selection and evolution had created within London an unfit class. Among those who believed this was the novelist, uh, the American novelist, Jack London. He's an nov American novelist, uh, best-selling author, and he's a socialist. But in 1902, he visits England and he decides to pose as an out-of-work sailor and live in the East End to observe the social conditions. The outcome of this is a book which I had, which was in our house when I was a child, called The People of the Abyss. He, in the introduction to it, written from California, if you can believe, he says, the experiences related in this volume fell to me in the summer of 1902. I went down into the underworld of London with an attitude of mind which I may best liken to that of the explorer. He consulted Thomas Cook, the travel agent, who said, consult the police. We are not accustomed to taking travellers to the East End. We receive no call to take them. And we know nothing whatsoever about the place at all. So he goes on and does it. Um, he does his own organisation and passes for an out-of-work sailor and lives there for a while. And he says about the East End, A new race has sprung up, a street people. They pass their lives at work and in the streets. They have dens and lairs in which they crawl for sleeping purposes, and that is all. As they grow older, they become steeped and stupefied in beer. They are to be met with everywhere, standing on curbs and corners, staring into, vacancies, into, va into vacancy. Now, there were more routine accounts from um, Jack London's pen, pen of family poverty in the East End among the respectable who've fall, fallen on hard times and serious discussion of the industries and economy of working class London by the way Alfred Russell Wallace contributes in the 1870s a very good well informed uh, article on the London building trade which he um, was acquainted with from the 1830s because his brother was in it and it's on wages economic structure um, the effect of the depression etc etc and there's plenty of that in Jack London but he is gripped, just like Mayhew was, by the spectacle of the London street people. And he saw this as in essentially evolutionary terms. Class supremacy can rest, he argues, only on class degradation, and when the workers are segregated in the ghetto, they cannot escape the consequent de degradation. To make matters worse, the men who are left are a deteriorated stock, left to undergo still further deteriorations. For the 150 years at least, they have been drained of their best, and those that are lacking, the weak of heart and head and hand, as well as the rotten and hopeless, have remained to carry on the breed, and year by year in turn, the best they breed are taken from them. He accounts a walk taken at night from Spitalfields to Whitechapel, along what he calls the commercial street, but I think he means the commercial road. He says, I was glad the keepers, meaning the police, were there, I was what is called a mark for the creatures of prey that prowled up and down. These males looked at me sharply, hungrily, gutturals that they were, and I was afraid of their hands, their naked hands, as one may be afraid of the paws of a gorilla. 
They reminded me of gorillas. Their bodies were small, ill-shaped and squat. There were no swelling muscles or wide-spreading shoulders. They exhibited rather an elemental economy of nature, such as the cavemen must have exhibited. But there was strength in those mere bodies, the ferocial primordial strength to which to clutch and gripe and tear and rend. They possess neither conscience nor sentiment, and they will kill for half a sovereign. They are a new species, a breed of city savages, and as valley and mountain are to the natural savage, street building are valley and mountain to them. And he warned of the coming social cataclysm which they would bring about. The dear soft people of the golden theatres and wonder mansions of the West End do not see these creatures, do not dream they exist. Woe the day when England is fighting in her last trench and her able-bodied men are on the firing line. For on that day they will crawl out of their dens and the people of the West End will see them and ask themselves, whence came they? Are they men? Jack London's view is it lies in the issue of the management, what he calls the management. And he argues for total reorganisation of society and um, socialism. Uh, that this is the only solution to the street uh, people. Uh, and to the division between the West End and the East End, which he regards as, at one end, the West End riotous and rotten, and the other end, the East End, sickly and underfed. Now, I am coming to the end of the, um, this, this, this quite, um, because I want to um, say something about this vision. This is an imaginative reconstruction. I'm not altogether sure it has the significance which people gave it at the time. It definitely had a significance. It was the burning question of the 1880s. It influenced the political parties. It, it, the whole generation became obsessed with this. It became even fashionable to go to the East End to look at social conditions. It became a, a void of discovery. But... And it, it's seen as, as the, the, you know, important for the whole of uh, Britain. It's a discourse, but it's a discourse dominated by the casual worker and the street people. Uh, and it's also dominated by a notion of the East End as a kind of crucible in which the social cataclysm threatening Britain was being cooked up. And it represented all that was alien, threatening, and very, very close because East End and West End they meet together, and the street people wander in, in between uh, these two areas. But much of it's a narrative concocted to amaze, titillate, shock the reading public. And much of it was concocted by journalists such as Mayhew and W.T. Stead of the Pall Mall Gazette, who, who goes on, uh, who also becomes a purveyor of L narratives of London life, which provided the middle-class public with constant stories of degradations and scandal. Um, and nobody denies the reality of much of the material. And it's as well to remind oneself of the great, um, of the existence in London, of what was in the 19th century real grinding third world style poverty, side by side with enormous wealth. Yet, it, and it can, but it conceals other na narratives, that's my argument. And yet all parties exploited the shock of London. Publicity and the use of the press were vital in both the Dockers and Bryant May, and May strikes. 
uh, because of the weakness of uh, unskilled trades unionism, mobilizing public opinion by presenting a dramatic story was one of the weapons used to compensate for the la lack of industrial strength among these unions. Tom, Mann, Tillett, Burns all put their hand to the dramatic gesture, street politics, the cultivation of West End benefactors, the rhetorical excess, the drama of street politics. Clergymen, um, such as Andrew Means, who produced the pamphlet The Bitter um, Cry of Outcast, Outcast London in 1883, were also accused of exaggerated narratives, which were in the short term very successful in raising money for distress in the East End. So that, as George Bernard Shaw said, social reform in London owed more to Jack the Ripper and the lurid headlines it provoked about conditions in Whitechapel than it did to the whole army of social investigators and clergymen. But London's not typical. It's not even the leading city in the development of 19th century trade union politics. It has lower than average trade union membership compared with the rest of Britain. It's a Tory stronghold. Even, it's a restricted franchise, but then uh, there was some working class electorate. It was a Tory stronghold for much of the 19th century. Uh, there's two safe liberal seats, Whitechapel, is one of them, but they elected a liberal largely because he was seen as the Jewish candidate and there was a concentration of Jewish emigration in Whitechapel. Socialist parties were very important to people like Beatrice Webb, to Charles um, Booth, to Andrew uh, Means, to um, uh, what you might call um, the West End uh, crew, but they had very little national representation and the Labour Party formed in 1980 was largely a party of the West Riding, Lancashire, the industrial Celtic fringe, though it has a strong uh, representation from London. Webb recognised the pe peculiar nature of the obsession with the London poor. She went undercover, posing as a Welsh farmer's daughter, a Miss Jones, to visit her poor relations, her mother's family, in Bacup, Lancashire in 1883, and she took an alias to avoid embarrassing them as a rich relation and also to experience life on greater equality. She says, mere philanthropists are apt to overlook the existence of an independent working class, and when they talk sentimentally of the people, they really mean the ne'er-do-wells. It's almost a pity that the whole attention of the politician should be directed towards this latter class. And she f seems to find in Bacup a much more uh, church-going, very strongly uh, community-centred, um, very highly respectable and independent um, working class. But the point is this, that some of the dominance of London and the discourse about London is swept away in 1916-18. The danger lurking in the lairs of London was seen to be an illusion. The real threat to social stability came from the conversion of the skilled working trades unionists, the engineer, shipwright, and then the coal miner and textile worker, to socialism and revolutionary ideal, ideals. They were the ones who created the British Communist Party, and they were the ones also who created the Soviets in Britain, which sprang up in 1918-19. Uh, nor do we have to take at face value these accounts and these narratives of how rich and poor, respectable and disreputable interacted in London. For example, the class of idle loafers which figured in Charles Booth's classifications of the poor in East London could in fact be applied to the rich 
It was idle loafing which eventually drove Beatrice Webb to seek some relief from boredom as a social investigator in the East End. I remember from Darwin's autobiography the very severe ticking off he received from his um, father uh, for his fondness for um, field sports and failure to settle down to any profession. But Darwin himself would soon join the ranks of idle loafer if he didn't get his act together. The settlement movement in itself provided a great deal of worthy work for the unemployable rich, those who would otherwise have frittered their days away. So just as Marx said that the empire of India was a vast system of poor relief for the middle classes, so the stream of investigators, social workers and social missionaries provoked by the crisis in the East End had probably more important impact in the long run in occupying the unemployable among the better off than it did among the unemployable poor. Um, it's also uh, clear that, um, in my last paragraph now, that the um, relationship between the poor and rich, um, which was um, often seen from the point of view of the poor as operating in the other direction. And in Shaw's play, Major Barbara, it's set, um, one of the scenes set in a Salvation Army soup kitchen, a respectable married woman is rebuked by a fellow inmate for misrepresenting herself as a fallen woman. And she replies, what am I to do? I can't starve. Them Salvation Army lasses is dear good girls, but the better you are, the worse they like to think you are before they rescued you. Why shouldn't they have a bit of credit? They are worn to rags by their work. And where would they get the money to rescue us? If we let on, we were no worse than other people. You know what ladies and gentlemen are. Her interlocutor then decides, his name is Price, well, you know what, Lady, um, I'm going to be Bronte O'Brien Price, the converted painter. I know what they like. I'll tell them how I blasphemed and gambled and whopped my poor old mother. And he's, um, she says, oh, you used to beat your mother? Not likely, she used to beat me. No matter, you come and listen to the converted painter and you will hear how she was a pious woman that taught me prayers at her knee and how I used to come home drunk and drag her out of bed by her snow-white hairs and lamb into her with a poker. Shaw saw it was poverty, not morality, that lay at the root cause of the East End's problem. He also saw that solving it would produce great disappointment in the well-meaning benefactors of the poor, for the amelioration of poverty would liberate the poor from their influence. He warned that the poor shorn of their poverty would no longer be interesting, nor use their freedom from want to engage in worthwhile pursuits. They would be impervious to admonition. But he also said it was a price worth paying. Shaw, however, also looked to Darwinism, not to save capitalism, but socialism. The ambitions of socialism's political um, utopias could only be achieved, he believed, with better people. Capitalism could only work by depressing character, but socialism only worked by elevating it. Thus, Shaw, in his own lifetime, looked to his own version of eugenic selection to create the new socialist utopia. 